0: When I say user onboarding, I don't mean tutorial or sign-up flow or just the first session. This is a continuous journey and a lot of companies or products still think that this is just a tooltip and tutorial checklist Bye. <laughs> we need to walk user through these steps continuously inside the product and sometimes some complex B2B products, the moment to activate is not in a day or two. Sometimes like products, they are more complex in terms of setup and it can take weeks.
1: Welcome to Dive Club, my name is Rid and this is where we go deep with the best designers so that you can learn from their journey and apply it to your own career. Today, I'm talking with Kate Siuma, who was one of the very first designers at Real Time Board which became Miro. Now, over her six years at the company, she eventually became the head of growth design. So, if you're trying to figure out how you can design for business impact in your role, then this episode is a masterclass. We talk about designing for experiments, speaking the language of the business, and Kate shares her lessons learned over years of designing and researching different onboarding flows. So, let's start off this conversation by learning a little bit more about how Kate landed the role and what those first few months were like at Miro.
0: For the context, I didn't have experience working on this type of SaaS startups, digital, like desktop products. I was in agency world and I wasn't happy in the agency world, to be honest, when the recruiter from Realtime Board reached out to me first but i also wasn't ready to join the company like real-time board i had like this imposter syndrome that i felt no 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 not now in a couple of years maybe after i gain my cases and experience in agency world i will be ready to join this company but not today but then i don't know something just happened over weekend and i decided to do the test home task so i just did that and then in one day and meeting with all the people in one room because the company was quite small that time. Uh, I received the offer and it was my birthday, by the way. (laughs) And I was just, oh my God, it's a sign that I really need to, to make that step. And the first year was very, very challenging because I was also finishing university and I was like doing these things all in parallel, waking up, I don't know, at eight, at starting, like starting at eight, finishing that and then going to work and working, like it was intense. However, I, I really loved that. And I think for the first couple of months, it was like the most intense learning curve, how to connect all these priorities, how to manage my time, how to provide and deliver value on something that I'm not experienced in, and just admit that I'm not experienced in that and be open to receive as much feedback as I can. So I was very honest with my manager that time. I was very vulnerable that time and I shared like, hey, I'm so grateful that you hired me, but I need to learn and I need your support. And after two months, I started receiving the signals that i'm working well there is trust and i'm building autonomy and after that i think it became easier for me it became easier to knock the door to the leadership meetings it just became more easy for me to become more active and proactive what really helped me is that i read this book which is called like mindset (laughs) it's about growth mindset and The basic idea is that you need to say yes to more things and then figure out how to deliver on them and like prioritize, combining different priorities in parallel, like saying yes to more stuff. All of that just became amazing for me as a learning curve.
1: You said this phrase, knocking on the door of leadership meetings, which I really like. Can you talk a little bit more about what that looked like?
0: I was lucky because the cultured real-time board was great. (laughs) It was just great. I sometimes I didn't even have to knock the door. People just invited everyone, designers, engineers, to leadership meetings, to align on strategy, to see what is happening, to have visibility to all of these things. So I got invited a couple of times, but then I just asked to invite me regularly. Or sometimes I was just looking at calendar. I saw a meeting and I asked if I can join. Like in the first months, to be honest, I was just sitting with my... Notebook, a physical one, and just taking a lot of notes. I was writing all the words I couldn't understand, like what does it mean? Weekly active users. Oh my God, this definition, that definition, and all of these things. Not actually participating actively on these meetings, but observing and collecting knowledge. And then after a year or so, when I already got some scope and role, and I could speak up more about my inputs and ask more questions on these meetings. But I think the approach was like that. And I think that was one of the most important things that I did in my past because this helped me gain this business context, not just design context or understanding how to create the product design artifacts, but also business context. Because when you are listening to these people, when you're listening how CEO and CPO are discussing the strategy for the next year, what is happening with the market, what is happening from the customer's standpoint, what is happening with sales, you just understand way bigger picture (laughs) that can help you design better solutions in the end.
1: What actually was happening internally to get you to the point where you felt confident speaking up and having confidence in your ideas that like they have worth and i should put my voice out there in these situations
0: the first moment when i felt that i'm comfortable speaking up happened after the first year for the whole year i was absolutely terrified and anxious every time i opened my mouth and asked a question I was shaken. I was like absolutely not not myself, because I think I understood that I don't have enough experience. I don't have enough knowledge about this field. Time is the best medicine for everything, and just working with these people, getting used to the culture, gaining experience this time helped me gain more experience, just helped me became become more comfortable and more opinionated in my questions and my feedback and my point of view, not just asking the question for the sake of asking, you know, just, just to raise the hand and show that I'm here, I'm active and proactive. No, I didn't like that. So just to think really what you want to get from that discussion. And it's also about trust. So I think to build trust for me, at least, it takes time to build trust with anyone who I'm working with, with the team or leadership. So, for me, it took a year. And also because like I was balancing and combining many priorities, including my education, it just took a bit longer, I think. And then as a leader, I tried to like actually wear myself in shoes of my direct reports and help them overcome through that a bit smoother or faster. So it will not take a year to build that relationships, to speak up, to be comfortable with that.
1: You said point of view, which made me go back to some of the early manager conversations that I was having when I first joined Maven as a startup. And my direct report was one of the co-founders, Trans. And he made a habit of once a month asking me, what do you think we should do? Like from a high level product vision standpoint. And as I started to anticipate those questions, it was like forcing me to think critically about product roadmap and what I think like the competitive angle could be for the company. And I maybe hadn't actually considered how valuable that was until right now, because it forced me to have that point of view, which forces me to become a better designer and to have conviction about like my ideas. So it's kind of an interesting angle. And maybe if you're listening and you're not in a situation where you're getting asked that question, ask yourself that question and force yourself to have that point of view because yeah, you probably grew a lot from something like that.
0: Absolutely. And I think the role of a leader in any company is to think about how to ask these type of questions to their people. Because sometimes I also receive these questions from our CEO. And that was actually not comfortable to receive that question because I didn't know the exact answer to these questions. They were very thought provocative in a good way. And it really pushes you to think in a different way. It's the best learning curve. And also it helps to build trust because if people are asking these questions, they probably trust you and they want
1: to hear your point of view. So let's fast forward the story a little bit because at some point you're actually given the opportunity to transition into more of a management track. Can you take us to that moment? and? How you thought about the decision and how that impacted the rest of your journey at Real Time Board and you know, eventually rebranding to Muriel?
0: After, I think, three years of working at Real Time Board, I was thinking, what's next? What I really want to do. I already was like the lead product designer in growth, covering four teams, I think, simultaneously. And for me, It was just important and pivotal to make this decision as soon as possible. Should I go to the IC track and just deepen my expertise in product design, in craft, become like more like senior hands-on specialist or I want to explore something else? So I think I just tried to dive deeper into my aspirations. What I really love at my day-to-day job, these things were like behavioral design. I also was very deep into user research. I really loved doing this aspect of of my day-to-day work. The second part was psychology. I started diving into that myself and I started diving into that from the user psychologist standpoint. And then the third aspect that I was very passionate about was like this business acumen and how to combine these three things and what can be an interesting role for that. So for me, the design manager opportunity inside the growth team or growth stream in particular was a great combination for that. Because in that role, you can practice psychology in day-to-day job because you are a people manager, you talk to people, you need to understand them very well. Then you, you can also practice practices from the behavioral design standpoint because in growth, you really need to think about that deeply. And the business acumen, of course, it's like from the managerial type of the role and also from the growth stream uh, standpoint. And for me, this transition was also designed as an experiment. Together with my manager, we planned this experiment for the next uh, six months with some, looking back, I would say quite ambitious goals because I had to hire the team in three months, I think. (laughs) And, And for the next three months, I had to onboard the team and scale it further. And you know, after three months of this experiment, I was still lead product designer. I hired first three designers to the growth team. I was so happy. I felt like, oh my God, I nailed that. The most complex part is done. (laughs) I will just relax and become a a design manager. But then the most interesting part just started after that. And scaling the team, retaining the team, educating the team like, you know, aligning with stakeholders, all of that just happened in the next years of my leadership journey. But I'm very happy that I made this transition because I really think for like the next several years, I felt myself more connected to my work, connected through people who are creating great experience. And I think it was right for me because I, now I, I'm happy to do some hands-on t- from, from time to time, but I think this is just not my core strength. And you know we need to build on top of our strengths, not on top of our weaknesses. We need to build on top of strengths and then you know, fill, fill in the gaps in terms of weaknesses.
1: I wanna talk more about the growth design team and what that actually looked like. Really quickly though, I wanna go back to something you said, which is this emphasis on psychology. Because I think as designers, you know, I can think of 20 different tweets that I've seen where it's talking about, well, you know, psychology is the most important thing that you have to understand as a designer and it's way more important than everything else. And I think years ago, I actually was self-conscious about that element of my practice because I didn't know like do I actually understand user psychology what does it look like to grow in this area and how does it actually impact my day-to-day as a designer so maybe you could talk to that version of myself like what impact did psychology have on how you designed and what did it look like to actually grow that muscle
0: I think everything started with the understanding that you really need to talk to your users a lot. And user research is the best area or field to practice that muscle and become more like learning by doing. This started with me after like a couple of years in the company when I even had a moment when I wanted to fully transition to become a user researcher because I was doing this every day. Like literally there was a year when I conducted more than 100 user interviews. And for me, it just became a new norm of thinking, of working, of designing. I couldn't imagine how can I do that without these conversations with people and observing how how they use the product and the psychology behind that and like why psychology is important. If we just design through the mockups, this is not the experience. This is just the visualization of some interface. But in order to design the interface, you need to understand the user journey. In order to understand the user journey, you need to understand how user thinks about solving a particular problem. And in order to map out this understanding, you need to understand how user thinks about these problems and what might be the bottlenecks. What could worry user? What could create the anxiety in this flow or journey? How to prevent them from this emotions, or how to shift this emotion to another emotion. And just thinking through that lens helps you design more natural experiences in the end, rather than just random mock-ups. Think through flows and think through actual experiences. And how to train that muscle, I think there is one quite good course for that, User Psychology by Growth.Design. Love I it. hope like the community knows that. Yeah, I was actually one of the first early adopters of their course four years ago. I think when they just launched that. I think over this time they even improved that, and it's like it's just a good foundation, just to organize some patterns and some things in your mind and just use them day to day. There are different existing mental models and situations. So like, for example, IKEA effect. This is a psychological principle that users are more used and more engaged with experience that they invested themselves and like that they contributed or created themselves. This is interesting also in terms of emerging AI because AI will do everything for us. You just need to press the button and everything will be done. But then my question to that experience is, how we can create this belonging, emotional belonging to these products, experiences. We need to figure out how to do that.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Like going beyond, does this solve the problem? Check yes, check no. And actually really thinking about the emotional component. I do like that as a lens for how to apply this psychology. You've now used this phrase growth design a few times. And, you know, you kind of made a career in this world. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of like, what is actually unique about a growth design team versus what we think of as more of like a traditional product team?
0: I think it's the approach when you're optimizing for learnings rather than just experiences. And this is why you experiment a lot. And this is why you iterate a lot. The growth teams are not feature-based teams. These teams are focused on flows. Let's say if this is about activation, then this team is thinking of first user experience when they sign up, Then when they have the onboarding experience and how they activate and it can be like interaction with everything inside the product. And this team is thinking through all of these parts of the experience, not just one feature or one button or one screen inside the product. Actually, today I was reading about different approaches to product management from Marty Kagan, the author of Empowered, Inspired Books. And about team cultures and he was talking about the teams that should be focused on something beyond features so product teams shouldn't be focused on features and i think the framework or the approach that growth teams are representing can be the transition to something new to a bit of different team dynamics and different team culture and different approach to building products because I see a lot of core teams and t- like traditional, as you've mentioned, traditional teams now are shifting towards this iterating, experimenting uh, approach way more than before. And I believe in the future, we will not have this definition or like separation, like growth team, core team, anybody else team. It will be more common for more teams to to do it through, through that lens.
1: Can you go a little bit deeper on that? Like, what is it? look like for a team to truly operate around experiments? Maybe there's even like an example that you can share.
0: Yeah, let's take a typical growth stream uh, composition that is usually focused on the whole funnel and teams inside this growth stream, let's say they are decomposed as like acquisition, activation, engagement, and monetization, for example. Or there is one growth team that is thinking through all of these steps of this funnel. And then let's zoom into the activation step of that journey. And inside the activation step, the growth team is thinking, okay, what do we mean by activation? What does it even mean? So what is the core value of our product? What do we want to deliver? Take Canva as an example. And probably the core value of Canva as a product is to create certain tangible outcome for the, for creators to promote their business. And then what is the first value that we can give to users to just experience the product? What is this aha moment? And then we can think about what it can be. And then you just think through that concept of activation. Uh, What is the setup moment? What is the aha moment? And what is habit moment? And then you're thinking how to lead user towards each of these moments and each of these value points through the product experience. So what we should do in the first experience, what we should even show on the website, how we can position our product and our value on the website when user just first saw our product. Then during the sign-up flow, how we can guide user through the sign-up flow to personalize this experience, to make sure they will experience this first minimum value. How we can make sure that user experience this aha moment, how we will measure that, what will be the steps in the product or flows, what we should trigger users to do inside the product, how we need to communicate to users after this first experience, what emails we, could, we should send to this user. And all of these things, which is like a connection of the product user experience of data, because in order to measure activation, you need to define it through data. And then you define it first, you, s- you build this experience. And when you then you start observing what is working, what is not working, where are the biggest drops are happening. So let's say our users are not even getting to setup up moment. They are dropping right after signing up and they are not coming back to our product at all what is happening here how we can understand that we go we research we understand that we create a set of experiments we create a set of experiments we launch them we analyze them and we never just stop <laughs> we we understand w- what works what not and we iterate second time third time we iterate as long as it takes to make a like to move the needle this continuous process of experimentation And we can talk more about that on the onboarding experience if you want.
1: Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. I think that we should drill into that because you're obviously like researching and also thinking super deeply about this. You have a bunch of experience designing different phases of onboarding at Miro. So yeah, let's go a little bit deeper and maybe you can even share Mm -hmm. a little bit from your own experience and kind of how you've approached onboarding in the past and different examples of like, lessons that you've learned and how you've iterated off of that.
0: When I say user onboarding, I don't mean tutorial or sign up flow or just the first session. This is a continuous journey. And a lot of companies or products still think that this is just a tooltip and tutorial checklist buys. We need to walk user through these steps continuously inside the product. And sometimes some complex B2B products, the moment to activate is not in a day or two sometimes like products they are more complex in terms of setup and it can take weeks so then what what how does it look like this weeks experience for for users so this all is about user onboarding in terms of examples i think at mira when we started working on user onboarding i was this founding designer in the growth team that time uh, it was great to experiment a lot and learn a lot and one of the examples was that adding more things into this signup flow didn't help us at all. So basically what uh, the hypothesis that we had that time was that users don't see the value of the product or they don't see the product itself during the signup flow. What if we show a little bit of like sneak peek at the product and make it interactive and make it fun and make it delightful you know what can happen then so the hypothesis was that users like we believe that users don't like you know sign up or like go through the whole sign up flow successfully because they don't see the value of the product and they are not motivated to to do that so this is the hypothesis. The prediction or assumption was that if we show a little bit of the product, then users will activate more, like uh, we'll convert more on this sign-up journey. And the reality was that users were distracted by these visuals. Users were distracted by these additional animated visuals. They tried to interact with them, but they were not interactive, you know, and then they just dropped on each step a little bit, a little bit, but they dropped. The solution and the iteration was then actually to remove all of that, and it worked way better, but it was too radical. I think if I would come back to this experience, I would like to iterate a bit more granularly on that and find the actual way to deliver or show this value somehow, but maybe make it a bit less noisy, less interactive, so users will not be overwhelmed or distracted by this, but still to somehow validate this hypothesis of showing value up front, because I think it's quite interesting uh, direction. But it also shows that sometimes you will not have a time or chance to get back to this experiment anymore. And if you made a big like change, then your product flow or your onboarding flow will look like that for the next several years, maybe, <laughs> because the company has a lot of priorities to, to focus on. So that was one of the examples on the early phase. I think another example that happened later was that... If you focus on big bats and change a lot of things simultaneously and run this as an experiment, it will be very hard to understand what actually happened and why it is working or why it is not working. The most important thing, what is not working? It will be very hard, but you already invested into that. And the learning from that is that first, it's important to decompose these big bets Not don't bet a lot on these big bets and trying to run the first iteration as soon as you can with the prototype, with anything. Don't invest a quarter into this development before you just validated a small version of that. And don't underestimate the quick wins because the quick wins or quick or small iterations sometimes have a very big impact. And then you can actually understand why because it's a small shift. You literally, you can connect the dots why it happened. So even a small personalization or like deep connection to some personalized experience was way more visible than just creating absolutely different tutorial, absolutely different sign up flow, absolutely different approach to onboarding.
1: You talked about the pitfall of adding too many distractions in the onboarding and like, yeah, you were like showing the product and it looked beautiful and it did, I, I've seen like a little video screen grab of it. It's beautiful onboarding and yet you still saw this drop off. I'm curious, like in your research, are there other pitfalls that you see people making when they design these new onboarding flows?
0: After I left Mira, I was also considering what might be my next career paths and experiment with that. And as I've already mentioned, research is one of my like just favorite types of product work. I realized now I have time and space to do my own research. So this is why together with my ex colleague we decided to... Run this research on user onboarding on the industry level and surveyed like more than 80 companies. And in terms of patterns, there are still problems that happened several years ago. Like, as I've mentioned, treating onboarding as a first experience only, not thinking about this as a sequential experience. Then not investing into lifecycle communication as email communication with the user, still not happening there. Also, I think another theme in terms of mistakes was generalizing the onboarding experience making it the same for everyone however we already know that personalization is the key personalization is the best way to improve the activation rate it's still difficult for companies to define how to do that and in terms of ux patterns i think what was also surprising for me that i as far as i remember more than 60 percent of companies mentioned that they are relying on step-by-step Two tips, and this is the method that was like used a lot of years ago and we know like in terms of user experience users just tend to skip them like next 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 done and this is not learned by doing approach this is not creating this you know labor illusion or ikea effect that i was talking about investment loops this is not about that companies are still relying on that probably and i was surprised to see that because actually the mental models of the user uh, of our users are very different, and we need to provide them different learning materials and give them a chance to choose. Probably user, like the, this is my thinking uh, right now, probably companies at early stages as well, or even at later stages, they are underestimating the importance of user onboarding and they just create something that just works, easy to build, easy to maintain, easy to modify and go with that and never come back to that for several
1: years. A keyword that keeps coming up in this conversation is activate. Like I kind of know what that means, but I also don't tangibly know how to define it. If I'm working on my own product, can you help people listening? Think about how to define an activated user for their product?
0: The activation framework is quite popular. Like There is the setup moment, aha moment, and habit moment. And the setup moment is the moment when user is just set up in the product. The aha moment is the first moment when user is experiencing this value that you're promising to deliver. And the habit moment is the connection of several actions when user is experiencing this value several times. And to define these moments, it's important to start not from the first one, which is probably counterintuitive, but from the last one. So you need to identify engaged users in your product who already created this habit and how this habit looks like. You can identify it through the, through data analysis, through retention regression analysis, or through also understanding who are your paid customers and why they are loyal, like why they are paying what, what is happening there. And then you do this regression to understand what led them to that moment and you uncover patterns so for example sometimes you will uncover that in order for users to come back to the product five times in a month let's say and create this amount of content and do this and that if it's connected to your monetization and retention let's say they do this in the beginning they do this sequence of steps and then you understand through that you just decompose 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 and you understand these root causes and you understand uh, what is the aha moment then? <laughs> you just define it and keep it simple. So maybe your aha moment of your product like, is just to create one piece of content for a specific use case. And for habit, it's like coming back and creating it several times. Or if it's a collaboration tool or if it's a tool for teams, then do it collaboratively, do it together with someone. Like, Just keep it simple first because the... With the evolution of the product, this activation will become more complex anyways, and you don't want to have it in a complex version. In the beginning, it will be hard to measure, it will be hard to to play with that. Uh, But it really helps when you define these things, because from that, your experimentation just becomes way more conscious and way more evidence-based and, you know, rational. So I would really recommend to think about that at certain stage, not like at early, early, super early phase because it's very hard. You need data, you need volume of users to define this metrics, but it really worth it, yeah.
1: It's probably been about 10 years since I've done my own regression analysis. (laughs) And so perhaps some people are listening to this like, oh man, like I'm not a math person. I'm intimidated by data. Can you talk a little bit about why it's important but also maybe even like how did you go about investing in your own data skill set and what are some ways where designers can even just take baby steps toward data literacy
0: i'm not a, a super pro in data let's say i can i well. can do that <laughs> yeah 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 but i'm not a data analyst i don't have this background i have a little bit of that in my education, but I'm not hands-on like with Looker or systems like that. If needed, I can do that, but yeah, I'm totally on the side of people who are a bit anxious when they look at these dashboards and like, <laughs> what should we do here? So I think for designers who already have like their team and data analysts in their teams, the most important thing is to ask good data questions. And in order to ask good informed data questions i think you need to understand a little bit of data but first just be curious about that just try to dive as deep as you can if you don't understand if like if data analyst is showing you something like this is the cohort analysis of our retention this is what happened and i see that there is a drop and you just don't understand what is happening just try to dive into and ask them to explain you as a child like what is what does this mean? Why this is happening here? And over time you will start understand this data a little bit more, and I think for a designer it's more than enough just to ask these good questions and receive data and make sure you can interpret this data well. But if you really wanna be hands-on with data that I think, why not? Especially if it's like a small startup and you're wearing multiple hats, especially like product managers are wearing a hat of data analysts and designers sometimes in growth teams are doing this uh, as well. I personally took a course on Looker some time ago and it really helped me just be more hands-on with data and just treat it as a game as a playful experience you can open this dashboard you can put some query and you can find something and it's super interesting it's always different you just see what is happening in the product you see these numbers and they are like this is just playful i think but i wouldn't Push everybody to do that. I think it's not necessary. Sometimes you can ask product manager or anybody else who is more hands-on with data just to tell you more about that. And your end goal and job is to, in the end, is to create experiences and you just need data points and you can extract them through for other people by asking them more informed questions. And I think in terms of asking good data questions, it's not just about understanding data, it's about understanding user, user psychology. Uh, we need to understand how to phrase that question.
1: Yeah, that makes total sense. I mean, you mentioned Looker. I've used Amplitude in the past. Another option too is just to just like ask a product owner or a product manager and mm-hmm, be like, mm-hmm. hey, I, I just want a little bit of capability in this. I don't want to be dependent on other people. How do I just set up basic queries? Because it is pretty simple to just get that like 10% and you can accomplish so much. And you triggered this memory of like a very specific example where I was designing these landing page updates. It was kind of up to me to figure out like, where do we focus? And... Being able to run very basic queries, I had to get handheld the entire way, but I was able to come up with some data that shed a light on something that was pretty interesting. And I was able to take that to like crit and present it to leadership and be like, hey, look what I found. This is what we could do about it. I think that was actually one of the more like accomplished moments in the last couple of years for me as a designer, where I was able to pair data with the story of what I thought we should do and kind of a little bit get there on my own. But I do think you're right in that like, Having the higher level literacy and being able to draw from the business principles is so important. And even just listening to you talk, it's very clear that you are business minded and you're able to really understand the systems and models that are like at the heart of what is making the whole thing run and how to identify the right needles to move. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about how you grew that muscle as well and and the different ways that that impacts you both as like an individual contributor and someone who's actually designing the interfaces and then maybe even as a leader as well?
0: Whenever I think we start working on a product or I started working on a product, I felt an enormous sense of ownership (laughs) towards what actually we are doing here. I, I don't think it's good or bad. It's just the thing that I had. Sometimes it made me be more anxious or more worried about work or like, you know, overworking and all of that. But together with that, this dedication and this sense of ownership just pushes you to think beyond the actual pixels, be curious and knock the door and ask the questions and be uncomfortable if you are not comfortable with the product strategy and feel all of that. And just because of that, I think that was a part of my journey. And this is why I ended up being in on this intersection of the product led growth and user experience that I love both things. I cannot decide. I cannot choose one. <laughs> I'm sorry. I cannot be just a product designer or, or a product manager. I'm, I, I just love both things. But in terms of companies and cultures and why I think companies should foster that approach to give more space for design people, for designers to be closer to this business site and business acumen, Because in the end, product designers are people who are creating these solutions for end users. (laughs) And if there is a mismatch or disconnection with the actual business aspect or strategy, or they don't feel included, that is a big problem. And I think everything should start from Treating design equal to product function in decision making. So whenever we are making a decision on what we are shipping, what we are not shipping, what is our priority, why we are choosing this experiment over this one, it's not a, just a single voice or decision from a product manager. Designer who who built this solution should have this voice. And design function in the companies should be equally represented on the Strategy meetings, H1, H2 planning, OKRs planning, these functions shouldn't be excluded. And I noticed examples overall in the industry when it is excluded or it is not equally represented. I think it's not good for the product. It's not good for user. It's not good for the company as well, because I think these two functions product and design they should sit side by side they should have this healthy partnership leaders should include design function into this decision making but i think we are still on that curve it's still not there in the industry there are companies who are more on that mindset like i don't know airbnb super design led like culture but i think it's not there yet maybe it can be like the motion can be happening both like top down and bottom up. So like people on the top leadership can be more open and include people from design function to this decision making and strategic point of view. And bottom up, designers can be more curious about this decision-making, more curious about strategy, more curious about business and knocking the door. And then this synergy can happen and this magic can happen. So this is probably something that is driving me these days. And this is what I'm trying to to, to push and talk about.
1: I mean, yeah, you've obviously been able to create a pretty successful career at that intersection point. And for people who are listening and not aware, you actually just recently left Miro after many years can you give us a little glimpse of what's next for you and what are you working <laughs> on what people can expect
0: yeah absolutely so i think i don't have an answer on what is next i'm experimenting and this is one of the most let's say risky expensive experiments for me <laughs> to leave a comfortable full-time job and do something else so i have some experiments i have some uh, paths that i'm playing with and like looking for the next version of of myself and so one of them is growth advising so i love working with companies on different stages helping them building this growth teams culture growing the product finding opportunities for that so this is one of the things i'm doing right now the second one is the thing that i'm passionate about it's my growth mates podcast that i'm doing with my ex colleague from mira that we started internally even like as a ritual. And then it turned out to be a podcast. And we are also planning to launch the second season this uh, January. So stay tuned on that. And uh, the third thing that I'm also doing is like this connection to the user onboarding. So we also created this research with my ex-colleague from Miro. You know, like (laughs) Miro is everywhere. Anyways, I left the company, but I'm still super connected (laughs) to it. So we are also trying to help companies to create better user onboarding experiences
1: if you're listening to this and you're interested in kind of this growth angle and all of kate's experience like leading onboarding for miro man i went through every single word of her Substack, which we'll link in the description and it's amazing it is so insight packed so i highly recommend giving it a read and kate thank you so much for joining like I'm excited to keep tabs on everything that you're doing. You're definitely an inspiration. And it's been an honor to have you on a chat today.
0: Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. Likewise, I'm super happy that you're doing that as well. As a podcaster myself, I can understand how difficult it is sometimes, how much effort it takes, but it's very, very rewarding activity. And I think it's also useful for the community. So I hope this conversation will be also useful for someone. And if you want, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'm more active there. So if you have any question or just think to discuss, just feel free to reach out.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Kate.